If you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, to open them up or turn them on and join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. As we're picking up in this sermon series that we picked back up last week, as we have been, started last year, preaching our way, studying our way through the Gospel of Mark together. And we've titled this a series, Astonished and Amazed, because as we'll see even in the passage of Scripture that we're going to study and read this morning, that the, the response of the people whenever Jesus uh, was around, whenever Jesus worked uh, on behalf of them and, 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 and in His power, the result was astonishment and amazement. And Mark wants us to be equally astonished and amazed by the Jesus who is, um, that He is revealing to us in these words. Last week, we asked the, asked the question of you, how do we define success? And, and what is the standard of success that we're following? And the challenge that we got from Jesus Christ as he began to teach on what it means to be a disciple of Christ, my challenge to you was that I would, I would pray that as you look over 2021, that you would, would follow a different standard of success as you are shaping your goals for yourself for the year. And in this particular passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, I think that it asks a similar but different question. Not just what is the model of success, but, but what is it that evokes devotion and even obedience from people? And as I was asking that question and thinking about the world, there was a phrase that came to my mind. A phrase that was made popular by President Teddy Roosevelt that said, Walk softly and carry a big stick. And that seems to be the pattern of humanity. That the standard of what it is that, that evokes devotion and especially obedience from people is this notion of power and this notion of might. Might is what makes right. It's the one who has the biggest army. It's the one who shows the most power that, that, that creates a spirit of obedience in people. That we're going to force people to do what we want them to do. That it's people who have prominence in the world, the, the social media influencers who are able to amass the largest following. They're the ones that people listen to. That in the, the world of business, that it's the one who achieves the most success by starting the most successful businesses, making the most money. They're the ones that get the followings. But what we see in Jesus Christ is something entirely different. That Jesus walks a path of humility and sacrifice and service. And in that, he proves himself to be the center of God's glory and his power. And that is what motivates us to be devoted to him and to do what he says. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And we're going to read down through verse 29 together. Mark writes, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no man on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son, 
Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And then when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I ask now that you would come and that you would guard this time. That you would focus our hearts and our minds, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to feel, minds to understand and hands, Father God, ready to obey to respond as you would lead us. That Holy Spirit, just as you inspired these words to be written by Mark for the congregation that he was pastoring at this particular time, I pray also now, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire me and that you would clear my heart and my mind and that you would work in this time, even through me. And that if there's anything, Father God, that is in this time that would be a distraction, that you would eliminate it. And that you would allow to land and to sink and to take root and to grow the truths that you would have us to know. And that you would let anything that is less than that be like chaff in the wind that blows from our minds and our hearts forever. This time is yours. So I pray, God, that you would work in us and then work through us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen and amen. As we pick up in these verses in Mark Mark links them to what happened immediately preceding this. In chapter, in the verses ahead, uh, above this that we've studied over the last week, 
You'll remember that that's where Peter made the declaration on behalf of the disciples that this Jesus that they have been following for so long is the Christ. It's a bold declaration that God says is revealed to him, or Jesus says is revealed to him by the Spirit. And we see that immediately the disciples misunderstand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And so Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus when Jesus begins to explain what his mission as this Messiah, this Christ, looks like. Because it doesn't fit in in Peter's understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. As Jesus begins to teach that he is going to go to Jerusalem, where he is going to be rejected, where he is going to be arrested, where he is going to be betrayed, where he is going to die. That doesn't sound like victory. That doesn't sound like the victorious one, the anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ that had been promised for so long. And so Jesus begins to address their misunderstanding of what the Messiah is meant to do. And he begins to teach on the cost of true discipleship and the nature of true discipleship. And at the end of that teaching, he talked about a day that will eventually come in which Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will be revealed in all of his glory. And then he makes this veiled promise that there are even some in their midst that they won't die until they see a display of God's power in Christ. And so in these next verses, Mark is linking us to those two last thoughts, the glory of Christ that is to come and the power of Christ that is here and now. And we see both of those in this passage of Scripture. And the first thing we see is this glimpse of Jesus' glory. As after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James, and they go up on this high mountain by themselves. Mountaintops throughout Scripture are places of powerful revelations. They're important places throughout all of the Old Testament. Two of the most relevant passages and the two of the most relevant events in the Old Testament happened first at Mount Sinai, where Moses went and he received the law of the Lord as God manifested his glory in front of the nation of Israel. And another event happened in 1 Kings chapter 19 on Mount Horeb, when Elijah went and he communed with the Lord, and he received encouragement and, dis- and instruction from the Lord on Mount Horeb. Mountains were places of communion with God and revelations from God, and that's exactly what happens at the top of this mountain. And Mark links that with, af- with it after six days, they go up. He wants us to know that what we see are about to see here is the fulfillment of what, he's just, what Jesus has just talked about and the promises that he's made back in verse 38 and chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus goes up on the mountain and he communes with the Lord, Luke tells us that he begins praying, and it's while he is praying that the veil is lifted between heaven and earth and the disciples get a glimpse of the glory and the true identity of this one that they have affirmed to be the Christ. It's significant that Moses and Elijah are the ones who arrive here, but it's significant because what Mark wants us to see, what God wants the disciples to see, is that in, though they had this special relationship with God, Jesus Christ surpasses them in everything. Take, for instance, the reality that if you read in the Old Testament and you read in the book of Exodus, that Moses would regularly meet with God face to face. And as a result of those meetings, Moses' face shone. It shined a light as it reflected the glory of God. And it freaked the people out. So much that Moses had to walk around with a veil over his face because his face glowed. 
Like one of those little glow worms that your kids had. You squeeze it and the light comes on. Imagine if somebody walked around and it was like they were a walking glow worm with their face just shining all the time. It made people panic. It made people uncomfortable. But Moses was able to cover that with a veil. But in this instant, we see that Jesus is filled with far more glory than Moses ever had. So much glory that it's not something that is a reflection of God's glory, but instead is inherent within him. And it begins to shine so brightly that no cloth can cover it. In fact, all of that cloth that would have been dingy and brown and covered with the dust of the, of the earth is so filled with the light of Jesus Christ that it looks like it is the brightest white, whiter, Mark says, than anybody could ever possibly bleach it. Jesus surpasses both Moses and Elijah in this moment. And the result of this display of his glory is wonder and dumbfounded terror on behalf of these three men. Can you blame them? Can you blame them if all of a sudden this man that they've been walking with for three years is praying and all of a sudden he starts shining with a light, a light that can only be explained as the glory of God coming out of him? And Peter, not knowing what else to do, offers to build him a tent. He says, hey, it's great that Moses is here and Elijah is here and Jesus, you are here. Let's, let's build some houses so that you guys can dwell up here and then this is going to be the place where, where all of the world comes and they're going to seek you and they're going to seek answers. And he's misunderstanding the moment just like you would and just like I would. Think about what you know about the Word of God. If you studied Scripture and you know what is to come, imagine what you would think if, if Jesus Christ was standing in front of you and all of a sudden He started shining with the glory of God and you started seeing dead people. What would you think? That the end of time has come and God is fulfilling all of His, pur- all of his promises and this is the beginning of the new kingdom of God. And that's exactly what, what Peter thinks in this moment. That we have arrived at the end of times. The rapture is taking place. All of the dead are coming to life. God is establishing his kingdom. And this mountaintop is where it all begins. So why not make it permanent by building houses for them to dwell in? And then we can expand the kingdom of God from here. Because Peter still doesn't get that there is something far more significant powerful and important that still has to happen before this new world can be established. And so, in spite of his misunderstanding, as he proclaims this, the the cloud, the glory cloud of God begins to cover them, and out of this cloud, God speaks this confirmation and command, this is my son, listen to him. It's the second time in the Gospel of Mark that the Lord has confirmed the eternal identity of Jesus as the Son of God. The first time that God did this was all the way back in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus came to the Jordan River where he was baptized by John. And it was there that God commissioned Jesus into his ministry. And in that commission, the the commissioning command that God says is he declares over Jesus, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus begins his ministry with a confirmation of his identity from God. 
And it's significant that here we are at the turning point in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is moving away from his teaching ministry and his his miracle ministry, as he's turning his attention specifically to one thing, and that's the cross in Jerusalem. That God now commissions him yet again on the journey to the cross where he is going to accomplish the will of God and win the salvation of man. And it's in that context, Jesus is teaching about his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. God's commissioning him on his journey to the cross that God then commands the disciples, listen to him. Peter is still struggling with all of his preconceptions about who and what the Messiah is meant to be and meant to do. As he is trapped in this notion that you and I are trapped in so easily that might makes right. And success is strength. That's the type of Messiah that he wants to follow. This Messiah that's talking about suffering and dying is not a Messiah that is manifesting his understanding of power and success. That's not the glory that that Peter wants. And despite that, God commands Peter and commands you and me to listen to him. To listen to him because Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses or Elijah, who all that they could do was repeat the words of God spoken to them. Instead, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and therefore his voice is the voice of God. He doesn't speak as someone who has a derived authority, but he speaks as the source of all authority, as all of the glory of heaven is inside of him and on display in front of them. Therefore, we're not merely to hear his voice, but we are to obey his voice. The command that God gave to Peter and the other two disciples is the command that he gives to you and to me. Listen to Christ. And so we must commit ourselves to obedience. God's command has two implications here. Listen first implies that we are hearing the words of Christ. We are familiar with the commands of Christ. The last step of the Great Commission says this, that we're to go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The discipleship process, our commitment to make and shape and send faithful followers, doesn't stop when we've dunked somebody in a baptistry. The commitment is to stay with that person and to continually teach them the commands of Christ that they might live their lives as disciples. And so the commitment that that God has of us is that we must first know and understand the teachings of Christ. That means that we must be committed to familiarize ourselves with the teaching and the word of Christ. And that comes through his word. That comes through familiarizing ourselves with this book right here. Because this is the only inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. Not some revelation that someone picks up in a dream. Not some download of information that someone says where they get all sorts of special new revelation where they've figured out the timeline and the paradigm of human history in America. It's right here and only right here. And this is where we are to commit ourselves to study and to know. To take in the Bible to ourselves. To meditate on it and allow it to change our lives. And that's the second part of the command that God gives us. Listen, it's not just that we should hear, 
The reality is we can hear this all day long and let it go one in one ear and out the other. And we've heard it. We've listened. But the implication is that we hear it and we obey it. That we allow it to go into our head and into our hearts and then change the way that we interact with our habitats. To change the way that we live our lives. The infinitely hard life of the Christian is built upon a profoundly simple principle. Read the Bible and do what it says. Period. It's a profoundly simple principle. Read the Bible, do what it says. Can it get harder than that? The, doing what the Bible says is infinitely harder than we ever possibly imagine. But that is the crux of the Christian life. Read the Bible, do what it says. Because this is the Word of God and it's the Word of Christ. And so it's Christ's glory that, that motivates us to obedience. And after this display of glory, we see the disciples and Jesus pack up their stuff. Everybody goes home. And they're descending down the mountain. And it's along this descent, this journey down the mountain, that we have this discussion of the descent. After God's command to listen to him, Jesus' very first command is to silence the disciples. He said, don't tell anybody about what you've just seen. And we said that repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Mark so far. And this is the last time that he will tell somebody, don't tell anybody of what's going on. Keep silent. And it's the first time and the only time that he gives that command with a qualification. Don't tell anybody about this until. Until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Because again, the disciples don't yet fully understand the ministry and the mission of the Messiah. And Jesus is attempting to reshape their understanding. So he is emptying out their preconceptions of what the Messiah is meant to be and refilling it with the truth. And so he says, hold this to yourselves for a period of time while you still are learning. He's shaping their understanding of the ministry and the mission of the Christ. And he alludes again to his resurrection. And it just dumbfounds the disciples. As again, they misunderstand. Mark says right there, he says they didn't get it. They questioned in their hearts what this rising from the dead might mean. You see, what is going on here is that they're not ignorant, they're just confused. Because they have a category in their mind, they've been trained about this notion of the resurrection. But the resurrection goes at the end of time. And the resurrection isn't something that happens to one person. The resurrection is something that's promised to the entire people. And so they don't get this understanding of how one person, the Son of Man, would be raised from the dead and nobody else would. Think of it like this. Imagine someone that you love dearly, a parent, calls you up and, or somebody calls you and, and informs you that a friend of yours, their child has gone missing. And nobody knows where the child is. And you called your friend and you said, hey, what's going on? I heard that your child is missing. And your friend in that moment, instead of acknowledging the reality or the possibility that their child was abducted, instead adamantly says, oh, don't worry about it. Little Susie's been raptured. You would laugh. Because our understanding of the rapture isn't that one person gets it, but it's a promise made to the whole people. To happen in one spectacular event. That's what Jesus is confused them on. 
That the resurrection from the dead isn't supposed to be something for one person. It's a promise made to the entire people to experience together. And yet Jesus has talked about this resurrection from the dead. And so they challenge him on it a little bit. They, they ask this very pointed question. It's not a question of confusion. It's a question of challenge. Well, you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. So then why do the scribes talk about Elijah having to come first? Doesn't make any sense. You must misunderstand. Elijah's supposed to come, and then the resurrection is supposed to happen. And we understand Elijah just came, but he left. He's gone. So how in the world is this fit? And Jesus' response is to affirm that Elijah must come. And then he basically answers their question with a question and says, hey, tell you what, I got a better question. A better question than why is it that the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? Why does the Bible say that the Son of Man has to suffer? And they don't have an answer. Because the same scripture that talks about all of the glory and the power and the promises of God, that talks about Elijah who comes and establishes this and begins this 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 reign of God on earth that is perfect and is utopian in all of its, its pleasures is the exact same scripture that says that the Son of Man must suffer and die. And so Jesus says, you've missed it. The path of the Messiah has in fact been prepared. Elijah has come. And that Elijah came, and the path that he walked, the path that he prepared, was a pathway of rejection, a pathway of suffering, and a pathway of death. That is what happened to John the Baptist. As he prophesied and proclaimed in the name of God, he was rejected, he was arrested, and he was killed. Jesus says the way has been prepared. It's just not the way that you expected it to be. And that's the path that Jesus is going to follow. He is the one who has descended from the glory of heaven to fight the fight we can't win with the power that we don't have. In this passage of Scripture, we see when we bring these two narratives of get together of Jesus on the mountain in all of his glory, the descent talking about his, his ministry to suffer and to save by his suffering, and the descent into the valley where there is a tumult, where there is a ruckus, where there is conflict, is a picture of the gospel itself. As Jesus Christ in heaven in all of his glory looked down at a sin-ravaged world, where conflict and strife and demonic powers and death reigned. And Jesus Christ descended from heaven that he might enter into the conflict and fight with the power of God by laying down his life, by suffering and by dying. That's what Jesus Christ has done. And that's the discussion. Jesus is talking about the, on the descent, about the greatest descent of all time when the God of heaven clothed himself in humanity and entered into a sin-stained, broken world to save you and save me. So Jesus Christ is on his way in suffering and in struggle. And as he comes down into the valley, he enters into the chaos of the demonic world and, and the demonic influence and the struggle and the conflict between humanity. And it's there that we, sh we see his show of strength. We see his power on display. As he marches into this, this difficult situation where there is this heartbroken father who has a boy 
And he has watched that boy suffer and anguish for years upon years, and he has been powerless to do anything about it. As he has repeatedly had to rescue his son from fire pits and from drowning. And he's had to cling to him as he's had epileptic seizures, as he's ground his teeth and foamed at the mouth and kicked and suffered. And he's had to weep through every bit of that for decades, potentially. And nobody's able to do anything about it. And in desperation, he brings his son to Jesus, but Jesus isn't there. And he comes to the disciples, the ones who are supposed to be able to be empowered by the teachings and the power of their, of their, their, their rabbi, their teacher, their leader, who's shown the ability and been given the authority to cast demons out in the past. And hoping against all hope, he puts his son in front of the disciples and he asks them to cast this demon out from them and they prove to be powerless. And the scribes are standing right there ready to mock and shame and bring challenge and say, see, if you can't do it and you're supposed to be the representatives of Jesus, then you have just completely negated his ministry. And they're fighting. And Jesus walks in and brings all of the attention to himself. He says, what's going on? And doesn't, the scribes don't even get a chance to explain why it is that they're attacking his disciples. Instead, this father in his desperation comes and explains everything to Jesus. And it's at that point when Jesus says this phrase, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? That phrase is directed not at the scribes, not at this man, not at the crowd. It's at the disciples. How long am I going to have to bear with you? You guys don't get it yet? So he says, bring the child to me. And the father brings him, and in that moment, we see the demonic realm rage against the Messiah. And this child suffers under the, midst, uh, under the, under the influence of this demon in, its, in his body that wants to destroy him, that hates the image of God in absolutely every human being that has ever existed and wants to rip it into shreds. And this child convulses right in front of Jesus. And the father in desperation cries out because he's already been let down by the disciples. So what does that say about the teacher? So he says, if there's anything that you can do, would you please do it? And Jesus hears the faithlessness not only in his disciples, but he hears the faithlessness, the faith of this man waning. And he says, if. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of belief and faith. And faith is that defiant understanding and belief in something despite what anything and everything and everyone else around you might say. So Jesus says all things are possible if for the one who believes. And the Father in this desperate cry says, acknowledges his own faithlessness, acknowledges his own weakness, and in humility says, I believe, now help my unbelief. And Jesus then rebukes the Spirit and casts it out of the child. Jesus in that moment not only exposes the faithlessness of his disciples and exposes the faithlessness of the Father, he actually is tender enough to draw it, to draw faith from him. And it's not the man's faith that saved the child. 
It's not as he begins to believe a little bit more that the child is rescued from the demon. Instead, Jesus turns because he is the source of all power. He is absolutely able to do anything and everything. That's the very definition of power. Power is the thing that is able to do something. Enables us to achieve victory. And Jesus displays his ability, his power to cast out demons and defeat the devil. To do what no human had proven the ability to do. To do what his disciples couldn't do. To do what no doctor could do for this child. To do what the scribes, the religious leaders couldn't do. He had all of the power to accomplish it. And that leaves the disciples puzzled. They say, why couldn't we do it? Why didn't we have the power? And Jesus' response is fairly simple. He says, you didn't have the power because you were disconnected from it. This is a kind that can only come out by prayer. Prayer is the process by which we commune with God. And the disciples had clearly neglected their communion with God. So not only are we called and motivated to obey Christ, we are called in this passage of Scripture to be connected with Christ, to commune with Christ, to commit ourselves to Him. The disciples had experienced victory in this area with demons on multiple occasions. And they'd even given the, been given that authority by Jesus Christ to cast out demons. What we see happen in this passage of Scripture is that success had bred an arrogance that resulted in self-reliance. They forgot that their power was not a power that was now inherent to them, but was a power that was derived from someone else. And to maintain that power, they must maintain that connection with the source of power. And just as they forget it, we forget it. Because everything inside of us, everything outside of us, in the world around us, wants us to believe that the power that we need to accomplish anything is inside of us. If we can just breach it, if we can just access it, then we can get anything in the world that we want. And we have that same misunderstanding of faith. That faith is like some, some power reserve inside of us that is mysteriously locked away. And if we could just find a way to breach that faith and access that faith and pull from that faith, we could speak realities into existence. And draw things out of the universe. But that's not what our faith is. It's often been said that faith is like that, that electrical cord. That in and of itself is nothing until it's plugged into the wall. And there it receives the source of power on the other side and becomes a conduit of that power into what is needed. Whether it be a lamp, a speaker, a television. That faith is most clearly exercised, as Jesus says, in communion with the Lord in the way that we commune most frequently with the Lord is in prayer and in conversation and in trusting in Him and running to Him and allowing Him to infuse us with His power so that we can face the things that are in this life, so that we can learn to be dependent upon God and not dependent upon ourselves. When we determine that there's a part of our lives that's too insignificant for the Lord, what we've really done in that moment is declared ourselves sufficient to handle matters without Him. 
And this never remains confined to the minor things of our lives. The patterns that we set in the mundane moments of our lives, the simple moments of our lives, the easy tasks in our lives, those patterns that we establish in those small matters are what ultimately show up when we're faced with difficult times and difficult seasons and difficult struggles. That's why athletes repeatedly drill themselves in the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. That's why soldiers go through routines as they go out on the firing line and repeatedly they fire that weapon and they reload that weapon as they are training their muscles because when it comes time and when it really matters, what they've done in the small moments defines what they do in the important big ones. If we don't train ourselves to seek the Lord in faith during times of ease and plenty and success, how can we ever expect to trust Him in times of financial crisis and marital strife and social unrest? He said we must train ourselves to turn to God as our first resort and not as our last. But unfortunately, so many of us wait until we're desperate and we're overwhelmed to cry out to God. We have to dedicate ourselves not just to read God's word and do what it says, but dedicate ourselves to be and live in fellowship with God. And that happens through prayer, an exercise of our faith to trust that God is listening and that prayer is the place where power comes into our lives and through us into the world. So we see Jesus Christ In this passage of Scripture, we see that it's His glory that motivates our obedience, and it's His power that motivates our devotion. And in my mind, that is so opposite of what we see in the world. That's so opposite of what I would expect. I obey the person who has the ability to force me to do what what they've told me to do. I obey the person who who shows me their power. I draw near to the person who loves me and who's attractive. That's why people follow the social media influencers is because they're attractive or they're prominent. There's something that is attractive that pulls people in. But what we see in this passage of Scripture is the exact opposite. It's the beauty of Jesus Christ that motivates our obedience. And it's the power of Jesus Christ that motivates our devotion. So are you motivated to obey Jesus today? If not, then maybe you've been looking in the wrong direction. Because the motivation for obedience is not His power. The motivation for obedience is His glory. Are you motivated to live in fellowship with God? If not, then maybe you're looking in the wrong direction too. If you're looking to Jesus to be the source of your warm fuzzies and affirmations, and that is the source of what draws you to God in fellowship, then you're going to be sorely disappointed the majority of the time in your life. But when you come to realize that Jesus Christ is the source of all of God's power on earth, and all of God's glory on earth, and that power is what you need to face the biggest things and the smallest things of your life, then you're going to be infinitely more motivated to spend time connected with Him in prayer. So maybe this morning you need to commit yourself to reorient and refocus your attention to see both Christ's glory and his power and seek him as the source of that in your life.
So my question for you today is, how do you need to move closer to Christ? How do you need to be reoriented to His glory and to His power today? How do you need to live lives of obedience that, that looks like reading the Bible, doing what it says, spending time with God and before God in prayer? What commitment can you make to Christ in those areas of your life today? I invite you, if you would, go before the Lord and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and guidance to show you the way that you can apply this passage of Scripture to your life and your heart today. Would you take a few moments in prayer, and then I'll close this out in a moment.